Is about to, I am here at the station. Here with you, dear, at the station. Here with the roses at the station. All my life I have lived as I wanted to. All my life I have had everything that I wanted. I spent my childhood in the fields. My boyhood on horseback. I was a soldier in the war. The bullets whizzed past my ear. But not one came near me till now. Till now, there is a better Love can't happen quite so quickly Not unless I dreamed Beautifully and sweetly Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios This week on Broadway for Sunday, October 8th, 2017 my name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist and is the chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see you can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, Michael, you're leaving us for a week. Uh, what are you doing this up, upcoming week? I'm going for a cruise on the Norwegian Breakaway. Wow. What are you doing? <laughs> to the Bahamas. And uh, the entertainment apparently consists of Rock of Ages and burn the floor and then i think there's some kind of a uh, uh a special cirque du soleil presentation also i haven't read up on that so much but yeah. <laughs> uh those are my entertainment options so it should be fun well you're gonna have a a nice trip uh sailing out of new york and heading down to the bahamas and back so you we won't see you next week uh jenna tessa fox is going to uh come in and uh, pinch it for you next week so uh, have a great trip Indeed. thanks coincidentally last night I, I ran into a friend who um has worked on the ships many times and he knows this particular ship and he said it's really wonderful and it's it's fun to hear stories of people who worked on the ships uh as far as, you know, what it's like to sign up for something for, for that long. I think it's, I, I think it's an absolute minimum of six months and, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of, uh, life that they live from day to day and, and how many shows they do and what conditions they live in. And I guess, which can vary from ship to ship. So it's, uh, it's a whole, you know, substrata of shows yeah, right. that, that not everyone knows about. Mm. Yeah, a good friend of mine, um, I guess maybe 15 years ago or so, uh, we had worked together uh, at a number of different companies, and uh, she joined uh, one of the cruise lines and just, uh, you know, just to get some work for a six-month contract, and it's 15 years later, and she has made her way uh, up the hierarchy, and she's uh, a very big person on on one of the mm. cruise lines. And, Wonderful. Um, and you know, who knows that this six month contract as a performer is a li- is going to be a life changer. And she has uh, I stay in touch with her through Facebook, and she has the most beautiful pictures all over the world of the places that she has visited and the friendship she has made and things like that. It's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. All right. First up in our review section, uh, both of you, Michael and Peter, got a chance to see the apple tree over at Musicals Tonight. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on that? Yeah. Um, first off, Musicals Tonight used to be an operation where uh, people would stand with books in hands and read and sing the show that they were doing. Uh, Mel Miller started this company uh, 20 seasons ago, and it has really evolved. And if you saw the productions early on, they bear no resemblance whatsoever to what he's doing now, because these are real full production. Nobody's holding a book. Everybody's learned lines. Uh, people are singing and dancing, and it's really, really something. And 
And um, they're doing The Apple Tree now, which is a 1966 musical by Bach and Harnick. They really suffered from the fact that um, it was the show they did immediately after Fiddler on the Roof. And the problem, of course, always is when you have a smash hit, everybody expects the next one to be better, just as mm. My Fair Lady, Camelot, and um, Chorus Line Ballroom, etc. You know, So it's, it's a hard thing to do when you really create um, a masterpiece. And uh, so as a result, The Apple Tree ran a little over a year and made a little bit of money but um, but wasn't the sensation, of course, that Fiddler was. But it's a damn good show. Now, the thing about The Apple Tree is that it's three one-act musicals. Now, the reason that happened is because the original producer, Stuart Ostro, said, you know, we always hear that musicals have second-act trouble. What if we do shows that have no second <laughs> act? You know, then we won't have trouble. Well, yes and no, um, because the problem is, as Stephen Schwartz once said when doing working a review, he says, when you do a review, um, no matter how good the song as you've just heard, you're starting from uh, square zero um, uh, when you do the next song because it doesn't build, you know. So as a result, after the first um, sequence, which most people feel is the best sequence, the Diary of Adam and Eve, um, the next two sequences, you're starting from scratch and it's very hard to get momentum. So anyway, it was originally done with um, two intermissions. And of course, we don't we don't really caught into that as much anymore. And uh, maybe because people don't smoke as much. I don't know. But um, when it was done um, uh, at um, the roundabout uh, at Studio 54, um, one intermission. Well, um, <laughs> that's even gone now. So uh, go to the bathroom <laughs> before you go to the apple tree because they do it straight through. And they do it quite wonderfully. It's a very, very, very fine production. And um, I really think that Ray Roderick has done a magnificent job and has come up with ideas – with ideas that are better than what Mike Nichols originally came up with back in 1966. So I think it's that strong. But also, now, any woman who takes on the parts of um, Eve in Adam and Eve, Barbara in The Lady of the Tiger, a a story that used to be told in every grammar school book uh, that ever was, and um, now uh, I think may have fallen into obscurity, and Passionella, which is a spoof on Cinderella that uh, Jules Pfeiffer did as a cartoon, and it's cartoony here on stage too, it always has been. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) uh, Barbara Cook, I'm sorry, Barbara Harris, Uh, Can I see Barbara Cook in that role? Maybe at that time I could have. Anyway, um, Barbara Harris... Uh, won a Tony uh, for the for the roles, and uh, the thing was that uh, that was the year the cabaret was sweeping everything, and yet um, Barbara Harris emerged with her Tony from the Apple Tree, partly of course because she was so wonderful and on a clear day you can see forever, and that was the other Angela Lansbury one for Mame, but she was magnificent in the Apple Tree <clears throat> in all three parts. It was the last time we ever saw her uh, on Broadway, which was really sad too uh, because she just lost interest in performing. But um, so this is a very very tough. Um, act to follow, acts to follow when you think of it. And uh, but Savannah Frazier does extraordinarily well. This girl is terrific, terrific, and um, well, well worth seeing. Uh, playing Adam, playing uh, Barbera's lover Sanjar, and um, <clears throat> also playing Flip, a, um, a, a Bob Dylan-y type character, if you will. The song sounds very Bob Dylan-y, actually, that he has. Is uh, a marvelous performer, too, named Garen McRoberts, a recent graduate from Michigan and terrific, terrific performer. And also just as wonderful as uh, Matthew LaBanca, who uh, plays the snake, uh, the devil, in Adam and Eve, and um, is essentially the narrator of the next two uh, stories. I, you know, listening to the score again, um, I really think that this may very well be Sheldon Harnick's best set of lyrics of all the wonderful uh, shows that he wrote. It just may be. I mean, just one example out of really dozens I could give, and I'm not going to give dozens because I want you to go see the show, but um, Adam is confused when Eve suddenly has been mothering, if you will, this fish. Uh, he doesn't know what it is. Um, it's not a fish. Um, and he says um, he thinks it's a fish because it surrounds itself with water almost every chance it gets. 
And we find out when he says, um, it doesn't speak, though on occasion it says goo. Well, now we know it's a baby, and, you know, he's confused about it. But, I mean, what a wonderful perception. Uh, <laughs> it says goo. I mean, you know, immediately we know. So, I mean, just wonderful, wonderful lyrics, beautifully done. And um, I fully understand why um, the problem of 3-1 Act plays, 3-1 um, Act musicals, is not a good idea. I really understand that. But boy, did these guys do the best they could with it. And especially for historical purposes, let me tell you that the last two were written in a hurry because originally they were supposed to do um, one by uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne called Young Goodman Brown. And uh, also they were going to do um, one by Bruce J. Friedman called Showbiz Connections. And when Mike Nichols came on and everybody wanted Mike Nichols because he had done three plays on Broadway and had won Tonys for each of them and his movie Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf had just come out so Mike was the boss you know and he said um, no I don't think so I think you should really do um, these other two and especially Passionella was his idea because he'd already done a, a straight play version of Passionella in Summer Stock which ironically enough he got Stephen Sondheim to write a song for and what's really interesting there is if you can get a copy of the song truly content that Sondheim wrote it's on a few albums um, you will see the difference between the way he treated the opening song of Passionella and the one that Bach and Harnick did they're both quite wonderful in each very different ways um, so so yes um, I guess the apple tree is only running till the 15th but um, it's well worth getting to especially if you've never seen the apple tree okay Michael what did you think well, seeing the show again at Musicals Tonight, I was struck uh, again by the fact that it seems to me that it's uh, it has the feel of a younger work than Fiddler or even Fiorello. I, I suppose that's mostly because of the you know, the one-act structure. Um, do you know what I mean, Peter? Yeah, you know, in fact, I do. That's a very good point because, of course, most playwrights are encouraged to write one-act plays to start with and then grow and uh, go to the three actors. So, yeah, that's a very good point. Right. Also, I suppose that um, the generally whimsical tone has a lot to do with Mike Nichols, even though he didn't actually write any of it. But I think that comes through. You can you just watching this production, uh, you can see, oh, yeah, that that's kind of the kind of humor that Mike Nichols would really do a great job with. Um, so I wish I had seen the original production. That must have been really something. But I completely agree about the leads in in, I mean, the musicals tonight production. I, I did think that um, the physical production was even a little bit more bare bones and unattractive than it needed to be even by the standards of musicals tonight. Um, they, they have, um, uh, maybe I said that probably because they've upped their game a lot recently for several of their recent shows, depending on, uh, well, I think it depends on who, who they get to direct and what access they have to, um, costumes and and how how elaborate they want to be with the set uh they did have flats for this one they, they used to have flats for any of their shows it used to be just basically black curtains uh but anyway that fortunately that's not very important um especially for this show and for what it's worth the the Broadway revival that I saw with Kristen Chenoweth, et cetera, also was was fairly bare bones. Uh, the thing here is the material and the leads, and I completely agree about those three. Uh, Savannah Fraser has that innate comic ability that you really need for for roles that were created by Barbara Harris, and she has that wonderful charm that that Miss Harris had, and she also though has an excellent voice and this um fellow uh well matthew labanca as the snake etc not only did he sing and act beautifully but he also played several instruments during the show mm -hmm. um i know i remember flute uh trumpet and bongo drums uh, one of the ladies in the ensemble plays the violin at one point and that really added to to the show um i i really thought it did and then Garen McRoberts uh, as Adam, etc. He uh, this big hunky guy, but with uh, with again a great comic chops. Um, 
I think he uh, one of his credits is he's done Gaston somewhere in, in, in Beauty and the Beast. You could see him uh, specializing in those those kinds of roles. He he really was wonderful. Every all three of them uh, just about perfect as far as nailing these these roles and and it, it's musicals tonight is such a perfect showcase for so many people um who, who you know who just there are only so many roles to go around in broadway and off-broadway shows and in the meantime mel miller keeps doing these classics for as as peter mentioned for 20 years now and long may he continue to do so well by the way about the scenery um at least for the first show, uh, The Diary of Adam and Eve, uh, you're not getting cheated um, very much from the vantage point of the original Broadway production, because there's an interesting story attached to that one, too. Originally, I mean, here's Tony Walton, and he's, they say, okay, make Eden. Okay, whoa. I mean, imagine what that's <laughs> going to look like. Oh, my God. The Garden of Eden, when the curtain goes up, everybody's going to go, woo, you know. So, anyway, <laughs> they built this incredible set for Eden, and... Um, um, it got as far – I'm told that it got as far as Boston. And um, when they were uh, putting it in, finally Mike Nichols says, you know, I just can't even find the actors on it. I just don't even know where they are because the scenery overwhelms them. Get rid of everything. And it, and it went out into the um, – uh, alley next to the Schubert Theater in Boston, and believe me, if there had been the internet then, and I had known that that had happened, I would have definitely <laughs> run to the Schubert. I was living in Boston at the time, and I would have run to the Schubert to at least see the scenery in the alley. But who knew? Who knew? So anyway, um, what they wound up with really wasn't very much, especially um, there was a ladder, and there's a ladder in this one too. So um, you're not getting that much cheated out of scenery um, by seeing musicals tonight, at least for a third of it. Yeah, the other two were a little more ornate uh, originally, especially the Passionella, which used, which we never really saw before, projections. Um, there was a very funny um, series of projections of Passionella, who is essentially a Marilyn Monroe type, but uh, with an incredible, incredible bust. I mean, you could put your entire collection of CDs, LPs, 8-tracks, and scripts of Showboat on that bust. I mean, it was that big. <laughs> and now, if you say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I saw the Tony Awards in 1967. It wasn't that big. No, it wasn't because uh, the network said, look, uh, can you tone it down a little? Uh, we just, yeah. You know. But believe me, in the theater, it was enormous. So um, <laughs> there was a lyric that Harnick dropped that I don't understand why he dropped at all. Um, and that is uh, in You Are Not Real, um, the song that Flip sings when he criticizes her for, for being just this uh, glamorous movie star when she should be doing Brecht, literally. Um, that's actually in the cartoon. And um, he, he I, I only remember three of the lines, but the first line was, I went to this theater called Grauman's Chinese. And I don't remember the next line. But the third line was, it had hand prints and footprints and other prints, too. Then I saw two deep holes, and I knew it was you. So there she was, you know, putting her breasts into uh, the cement <laughs> in Grauman's Chen. I don't know why that was dropped. But anyway, back to the projections. What had happened was they showed projections of her on Time Magazine and Newsweek and all that type of thing. And always they accentuated the bust um, in, in the projections. So that was an ornate thing, no question. And... Um, <laughs> but you don't get that at musicals tonight, to say the least. But but really, um, the, the play's the thing, and um, this is well, well worth seeing. And indeed, if this had come before Fiddler, uh, just as if Camelot had come before uh, My Fair Lady, etc., um, I think it would have done much better. I really do. Mm. So uh, I, I am so excited because I haven't heard Ray Roderick's name in such a long time. I worked. Yeah, I Ray. heard you react. I heard you react to that. I yeah. worked with Ray way back in the day, and I thought to myself he's going to be a huge director someday and i've always wondered why we are not talking about ray more often uh well i'm glad to talk about him now i really am i mean really top-notch work that's great great to hear all right so next up peter you got over to playwright uh rattlestick playwrights theater um where you saw i'm going to read the whole title here my lingerie play 2017 the concert and call to arms the final installation okay so tell us about my lingerie play 
I think this is the third week in a row when I'm saying this is the damnest thing I've ever seen. You know, so now first off, it's general admission. So, oh, wow, general admission. That means I can sit in the front row um, because they never put critics in the front row. Um, and so great. Ah, so I'm in the front row. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, if, if you're in the front row, be prepared to be dragged up on stage to blow bubbles with uh, in, through a bubble wand. Uh, you know, so uh, um, it, it it's it's essentially about this woman who um, tells us uh, about her life and uh, her issues with um, feminism and um, how people are are not really uh, doing enough uh, to um, make feminism uh, more prominent. So it's basically that. So it's um, uh, quite a rant at, at many moments. Uh, it's it's musical in the sense that uh, she does play the guitar and that she does have a backup band that she gets involved with here and there. Um, and she it's really a screed more than anything else. Um, but you, a person is also recruited from the audience to have um, a head shaved. Yeah. So um, if you know, if you want to save a few bucks on a haircut, um, you can certainly have her do it. You can get up in the middle of the show. And yes, um, maybe uh, they should hire her over at Sweeney Todd. <laughs> I'm telling you, uh, this uh, this may be the ultimate. Um, well, maybe not the ultimate, but the point is that um, it is at least a step forward or backward, depending on your outlook, on audience participation. Uh, because you really then we we have to get up um, out of our seats and make a circle, which isn't easy in the Rattlestick Theater. Um, so, uh, which is a, a a shoebox of a space, but we did the best we can. We made novel. We didn't make a circle, but um, there's also everybody holds a paper bag on which there's a feminist um, sentiment. Um, and um, what we're supposed to do with the paper bags is um, bring them to a rally on October 28th, I think in Washington Square Park. I wasn't paying that much attention to where it was going to be because I knew I wasn't going to be there. So, um, But everybody has to hold a paper bag when they're on stage, too, with one of these sentiments on them, giving a whole new meaning to the paper bag players. Um, so, uh, you know, I uh, it, 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 it didn't do anything for me, I have to say. Uh, I guess it's much more of a young person show because the young people seem to enjoy it quite a bit. Um, there is um, some uh, bearing of breasts uh, that the woman does, um, so uh, maybe that'll sell a few tickets. Um, but as she says, you know, here are my tatas. So, um, but one has to then wonder if indeed she's going to go um, to the next level. She doesn't, but um, she is in lingerie for much of the evening. But I, I don't really um, quite know what the ultimate point is um, in terms of are we exploiting women by um, making them um, models in lingerie um, and if so it, why is she taking it off it, it just made no sense to me but maybe it'll make sense to other people and they can explain it to me okay so that is the uh, long title I'll abbreviate it call it my lingerie play it's mm -hmm. over at on Waverly Place uh, through October 28th Michael, you got over to uh, Theater for the New CD, where you saw Up the Rabbit Hole. Tell us about that. Well, this is a new play by Andy Halliday, um, and the main reason I went was because I loved, loved, loved the last play he did there a couple of years ago called Nothing But Trash, which was a kind of a genre spoof, but with a lot of heart to it about gay teens in the 50s and repression of, of uh, gay love in the 1950s. Uh, and that was just really, really great. This is completely different, polar opposite. And I, and I knew that going in, so I, it wasn't a surprise. Up the rabbit hole. I'll, I'll read the um, note from the playwright because I think it pretty much sums it up. He says, this play is a very personal one for me. As an adopted child, my feelings about being different were very powerful and consumed my thoughts as a teenager – these feelings were comforted by a very bad cocaine habit. I went into rehab. I got out. But I was one of the lucky ones. I wrote this play for the queer community to show that there's hope for people who deal with addiction problems and low self-esteem. So um, – Pretty uh, hard-hitting content, as you might imagine, from that just from that brief pricey. Uh But it's uh, great to see him stretching, uh, to see Andy stretching like that. I, I uh, this uh, I, it could not be more different from uh, 
from Nothing But Trash and also the, a lot of the plays that Andy was involved with uh, when he worked with Charles Bush uh, and um, Ken Elliott uh, for all those years uh, that um, in theater in limbo. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's so impressive when, when people go a different way uh, uh, and uh, especially when they have, have a history of, you know, a certain type of theater and then they, and then they really try to be creative and, 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 and add to their, uh, add to their um, types of stuff that they do. Uh, this show had, uh, interestingly enough, it had uh, one woman, Lara Lou Smith, playing both the birth mother and the adopted mother of the central character. And I thought she was excellent and, and did a really good job. I, I don't know if that was done mostly uh, uh, through expediency or because the uh, the uh, playwright and the director, G.R. Johnson, were trying to make a point. But I thought that was an interesting device. Um, and then the other actors are Quinn Coughlin, Tyler Jones, uh, Peter Grigas, uh, and Andrew Glasick. Uh, Andrew and Peter, I wanted to especially single out also. They, uh, um, they were really excellent in this play. Uh, Peter Grigas, most people know from Jersey Boys as Bob Crew, but he, yeah, this is again a departure for him as well. And it's nice to go. Uh, I don't get to theater for a new city too often, but they tend to have a lot of interesting things there. They also have an, uh, something else playing there now, a musical called Cle Cleopatra, which I have not seen, but I'm hearing a lot about that. So that's another thing to put on your radar if you if you have a chance to get down there to First Avenue, uh, First Avenue and like between 9th and 10th Street. Uh, so... Um... I wanted to give the proper credit here. Uh, mm -hmm. So on the Theater for the New City website, it links back to a company called the Windowpane Theater. And, yes. But I'm not sure if Windowpane, if this is their production, it's a rental, or if it's being presented by Theater for the New City. I'm not sure. but it's a, It says developed by Windowpane Theater Company, if that helps. All right. Great. So um, I'll throw that in the show notes as well. Okay, uh, next up, Peter, you got a chance to see fucking A, so why don't you tell us about uh, your <laughs> experience there? Well, this is Susan Laurie Park's uh, play, Revival, and it's at Signature, and if you look at it, um, if you saw pictures of it, and, and a little bit of video of uh, the, the few songs that come in, you would think that this is a Bertolt Brecht play done on an Athol Fugard set. Uh, it looks like we're in um, South Africa. I'm not saying we are, but it looks like uh, very much that Athol Fugard look. So um, it's, it's about a woman uh, who does have an A, not on something she's wearing, but actually imprinted on her body uh, right um, below her left shoulder blade. And uh, her dress has a cutout so that that A will always be shown. And here the A means not adultery, as it does in the Scarlet Letter, even though her name is Hester, but that she's an abortionist. And... Um, well, so uh, that is obviously a stigma there um, under those uh, very difficult circumstances um, in this country. Now, Christine Lati plays the um, the abortionist, and I have to say that she has really, really um, allowed herself to look totally unattractive. She looks beaten down. Uh, she looks 305 years old. She looks like the wrath of God. It uh, it really is something. It, it, she's almost unrecognizable. Uh, at, at first, I even thought, oh, I must have made a mistake. This isn't the play that Christine Lottie is in. I had, you know, I was with um, Linda, and I was talking to her before, so I didn't even look at the playbill. But, but then she came out with a smile that made me say, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That that is indeed she. So, um, so a very impressive performance under very difficult circumstances, and the play does feel like Mother Courage, in uh, in a certain way, and. Um, but what it deals with is the fact that she has a son um, who has been incarcerated for a long, long time. She hasn't seen him, and she wants to see him again. And I'm sure that parents who have had this experience uh, can relate to what's going on here tremendously. And the problem, of course, of you have no idea what this person is like now. 
that uh, what has prison done to this person? So that's the uh, that's the main conflict uh, when she sees this this young man who turns out to be more horrific, I'm afraid, than um, she thought that um, he would ever be. So uh, Brandon Victor Dixon plays him, and uh, the way it plays out by the end of the play is pretty horrific. I will say that one of the most amazing things <clears throat> I've heard in uh, in recent years, if not decades is uh, done by a butcher. Now, um, literally, the, the characters um, don't have real names. Um, they're described simply by uh, their occupations for the most part. And so here's Butcher. And uh, that's played by Raphael Nash Thompson. Wonderfully. But here's the point. Um, she says to him, tell me about your daughter, um, how she's doing. And he says, well, she's a bad seed. Um, and then he tells you what she did wrong. And then he tells you what she did wrong. And then he tells you what she did wrong. He goes on for probably three to five minutes. One thing after another, one yeah. atrocity after another. And some of them aren't even so bad. That's what's so funny. Um, every now and then he'll say she went out at night uh, without a flashlight or something like that. You know, So it's, it, it is such an incredibly funny monologue, which he does with such world weariness that he has, uh, you know, he's just come to terms with the fact that she's no good whatsoever. And certainly, if she's guilty of everything he says, um, she, uh, uh, she is no good. But uh, all things considered, I think fucking A is worth seeing just for this monologue alone, but it's very potent in in um, in all areas and uh, tells its story very well. And in conjunction with In the Blood, these are two excellent revivals of Susan Laurie Park's play, and I hope she's very pleased with them because I certainly am. So, um, unfortunately, it is ending today, October 8th. Uh, so, hopefully... You have seen it already if you're listening to this, or maybe we'll see more of these uh, productions pop up around uh, in uh, regional theaters. Uh, I didn't realize it closed. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, uh, what I have here in the notes is that it's playing through October 8th. Maybe they've extended um, since I've last looked. Let me check here um, to see. Yeah, no, October eighth. So uh, end this after- uh, It'll end this afternoon. Yeah, it was all right. Then you know. Fucking A is published, and the moment I got out of the theater, because Signature has that wonderful little gift shoppy area, uh-huh. um, I immediately picked up the um, the script to uh, to find that monologue just to see how long it was. And um, huh. <laughs> so uh, it is published, and as a result, now that you can't see it, at least read the monologue. It's it's hilarious in its in its black comic way. Hmm. Now, Peter, hadn't you you reported on In the Blood a few weeks ago, didn't you? Uh huh. Yeah, no, I just remembered that uh, in this context that you had talked about that yeah, as well. The yeah. two plays as a as a pair there. I think yeah. that In the Blood is also uh, winding up soon, if it hasn't already. All right, Michael, you got over uh, to the triad to see Anything Can Happen in the Theater, the songs of Maury Yeston. Um, so we previewed that last week. Tell us what you think of the show. Yes, Gerard Alessandrini put together and directed this show by... I guess one of our favorites, uh, one of my favorites, Maury Yeston. And it's, uh, as far as I know, the first review of his songs, it was extremely enjoyable and very well put together with, I would say, um, two-thirds of the songs I had never heard before. There are, uh, there are some familiar items, including uh, several songs from nine we got call from the vatican saint sebastian's guido's song unusual way and only with you uh, but of the other songs a, a great many with which i wasn't familiar um there was nothing from titanic interestingly enough and uh there uh y- you know maury has written several shows that uh, that have great numbers of fans. He 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 has his own special style and, and, and a lot of proficiency as both composer and lyricist. Death Takes a Holiday is a show that um, 
played uh, played off Broadway and not for very long, but I know it has huge fans. And then uh, I'm I'm sure it doesn't need to be said that many people consider Maury Estes Phantom superior to the Lloyd Webber one for whatever that's worth. Um, you know, not not commensurate with the runs of each of them. And then, uh, of course, Maury also contributed some some songs to Grand Hotel, which is going to be coming back and encore. So he's 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 definitely around now. And I'm glad that Gerard focused on him for this show. Uh, oh, um, another another song in, in this show is one that I've always loved. It's called New Words. Mm. from a show that was originally called one, two, three, four, five. And then I guess was revised and is now called in the beginning. And it's about the first five books of the Bible. Um, so if that ever gets restaged somewhere, you, you can go and check that out. But this show had uh, two cast members with whom I'm very familiar and of whom I've big fans, Robert Cuccioli and Jill Pace. Uh, but the other three were really com- basically completely unknown to me. Alex Getlin, Justin Keyes, and Michael Maliakel, uh, with Greg Jarrett as uh, uh, the musical director at the piano, by the way. Uh, and these three, uh, these other three people, it was so great to see fresh faces and hear fresh voices, but also um, their voices were uh, not necessarily typical Broadway type. And that turned out to be great because a lot of the unfamiliar songs um, were written in uh, very different styles from from some of the more famous Yeston things. Uh, uh, some very pop type songs, I would say. One, one or two um, that had a country bent. There was a, a a very bluesy song called "Salt and Pepper," which was also very funny, uh, de- de- delivered by Justin Keys. Um, it's. Uh, a very enjoyable show and especially instructive in terms of seeing uh, and hearing Maury Yeston's range, which those of us who are really only familiar with a few shows may not be fully cognizant of that. So I, uh, I'm glad that they did it. it. It's starting out at least as, a, as, as quite a limited run, I, um, so I'm not sure how much time you have to get to it but check the uh, check the, the the triad website or just google anything can happen in the theater the songs of maury Yeston. by the way um you mentioned new words um mm-hmm. maury Yeston was uh, one of the found uh, not founding but one of the early members of the bmi workshop when layman yes. engel was teaching it and um layman said that was his favorite song he ever heard in the workshop to the point which when Mari, uh, when Layman's memorial happened, uh, that was the, the final song that was played uh, to end the memorial service for Layman Engels. So uh, it really oh. is it's a magnificent idea for a song, and it's a beautiful song melodically as well. So, um, so it really is very, very impressive. Um, as for The Phantom, back in 1993, Paper Mill Playhouse did its most ornate production ever mm-hmm. of that Phantom, and that was really their Broadway production. That's as close as they're probably ever going to get to New York, and um, it really was something. And uh, I am sure the people who have seen this Phantom uh, that he did with Arthur Coppett all over the country, and I, I saw it literally uh, twice in two days in two different states because uh, wow. everybody was doing it. And um, I, I'm sure people have fond memories if they saw the paper mill production, which uh, was elaborate beyond belief. So um, now um, the um, in the beginning, uh, one, two, three, four, five, a couple of interesting things there, too. For a while, it was even called History Loves Company <laughs> at the uh, Marriott Lincolnshire Theater um, in uh, near Chicago. And um, the other thing is that um, in the movie version of Please Don't Eat the Daisies, this, uh, which is about a drama critic, specifically Walter Kerr. Um, I don't think they use those names. But anyway, one of the points is that when you're a drama critic, people are always going to come up to you and say, look, I've got a play and can you help me? And this turned out to be a cab driver who said, yeah, I've written a musical about the first five books of the Bible. Um, so <laughs> who knows if Murray Essen got the idea from there. Uh, the irony is, too, in the movie of Avanti, which was a 1968 uh, play on Broadway, um, Juliet Mills in the play talks about, I think, her boyfriend who's writing a musical version about the Titanic. So I mean, it's very <laughs> interesting that, <laughs> that both of these things, which are meant as jokes in these uh, movies, uh, turned out to be actual stage shows. 
Oh, uh, just small world. Our uh, listeners will remember that uh, just last week, Alan Menken was our guest on on the podcast, uh, primarily to talk about uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. And it came up uh, that it really was more Yeston and Lehman Engel who kind of brokered the marriage, the partnership between Alan and Howard Ashman. And and sure enough, I uh, I, I got to speak with Maury briefly after this um, the show at the Triad, and 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 I mentioned that we had discussed that with Alan, and he you know he definitely confirmed it. Uh, not that I doubted it, uh, but it's uh-huh. it's you know, and I said well. I said, I guess we'll have to consider that a match made in heaven. (laughs) And by the way, I'll I'll throw this in, even though this is apropos of nothing at all. But I was watching a movie last night called Checking Out, uh, which was based on a Broadway play that was done in 1976. A very short run play written by Alan Swift. That's Louis J. Stadlin's father. And um, a lot of people liked it, even though it only ran 15 performances. And last night I was watching the movie version and there was a joke about a production of Rhinoceros in Yiddish. (laughs) Well, it closes today. You know, I mean, it, 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 we have one uh, just this past month. So, uh, again, um, truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> Peter, I have a, a quick story to share with you about Grant Hotel. Uh, I I'm saw... listening. It's a favorite of mine. Go ahead. <laughs> so I uh, took a, a, a non-theater person on a first date to see Grand Hotel. And uh, when they did Red Roses at the Station in Act Two, mm-hmm. I burst into tears. Oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, first and yeah. last date, you know? Yep. <laughs> they were like, this freak here is. Yep, I know. I pray. I had that experience I, once, too. I, I really did. Yeah. <laughs> Red Roses at the Station that uh, uh, transitions into Love Can't Happen. Uh, I, it's such a moving moving piece uh it's some of the uh best work and also the phantom the moriest and arthur coppet phantom i did it seaside music theater um uh and when we were doing it the (laughs) the uh, whoever was licensing it i can't remember which house was licensing it the scores were not complete and we uh it's ironic right before i did um before I was at Seaside Music Theater, I was at the Jupiter Theater in, in Jupiter, Florida. And Jupiter was doing Phantom right before Seaside, and so I knew folks down at Jupiter. And uh, and they were sending the scores directly from Jupiter to uh, Orlando, or I think Seaside's in Orlando. It wasn't Orlando, yeah. And uh, it was just ironic because it really was – they were – not quite prepared to get that up and running. We were, we everybody was making uh, cuts to it. Main State Music Theater had done it right before Jupiter had done it. We actually got the costumes from Main State Music Theater down in Orlando at Seaside Music Theater, and uh, it it was all the rage right back in that time. I, I don't know if it was ninety two or ninety three or something like that. Yeah, uh, the recording's ninety two. So anyway, go on. Yeah. So no, it was. Uh, but that 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 phantom was, uh, uh, you know, it had had some structural problems, but it had beautiful music in it, and uh, it was uh, it was interesting because a lot of the uh, a lot of the audiences that were confused between the Andrew Lloyd Webber oh yeah version <laughs> and this version, and were making comparisons and things like that, but it was uh, our complaints, was, our yeah. complaints, because uh, <laughs> you know, I, I any artistic director who did the show yeah. had the same story with me. People come up at the end and said, "How yeah. come you didn't do music in the music night?" Of the night, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and even though there's a wonderful song called "My True Love," which uh, towards the end of the show, which is really glorious, um, it still wasn't enough for those people who want to hear music of the night. So. Well, it's too bad because I, you know, I, I assume it goes without saying that that probably the main reason why it's not done more often is because people realize they have to go through hoops uh, in order to try to make it crystal clear uh, in the advertising. And you know, I mean, you know, how how big can you put? Uh, <laughs> more Yeston's name, and and should you put not Andrew oh, Lloyd Webber? You know, right, I, right, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a limit. <laughs> yeah, and the fact, of course, that the Phantom of the Opera has hung around now and forever has sure. uh, you know been, been a liability as well. So uh, so anyway, hmm. 
Peter, you got to see uh, the climbers over at the Metropolitan Playhouse. So tell us about that. Well, I love the Metropolitan Playhouse. Uh, I'm really crazy about these people because they uh, find these scripts from yesteryear. And I mean, really, yesteryear. The one they found this time is from Clyde Fitch and was first done in 1900. So that's quite a yesteryear. And um, the climbers uh, deals with a family that uh, of social climbers. That's what they're. That's what it means. Um, and um, the problem is that they have a Bernie Madoff in their midst. And uh, it's so funny to hear, uh, well, not funny, but even tragic, but uh, both funny and tragic to see that the type of chicanery that uh, Bernie Madoff was doing was happening way back then. And um, so we do have um, uh, the family being mortified and scandalized that uh, their hopes for a better life um, have gone completely down the drain. They trusted their money with this man. They gave him all their money and look what happened. And um, and for the longest time, he denies it. And, um, and the question is whether or not his wife should stay by him under these circumstances. And uh, that's a real conundrum when you have this situation because she did love this man, or at least she loved the man that um, she really believed that he was. So um, nicely done, especially by um, Aaron Bernard, that's B-E-I-R-N-A-R-D, who um, who plays the uh, wife, and she really was tremendously impressive. Um, So I really liked her quite a bit. Um, But I liked um, most of the people in the cast, and um, I really was impressed to see that they found a play that was so old and yet is so relevant today. So um, that was very impressive to me too. It goes on a little long. Yes, it does. um, Because at the end, will he or won't he commit suicide? And boy, um, he does have a problem with it. But I guess that's really true to life. I mean, when you think of it, uh, I imagine most people who commit suicide do give it a lot of thought before they finally take the plunge. And uh, so even though it's hard to watch and you say, are you or aren't you? I mean, you have to understand the person's point of view and um, understand the reluctance to uh, to do it. So um, so I think the climbers is worth seeing Um, this is far off the beaten track they're between avenues um a and b um um, fourth street uh and um you have to climb a flight of stairs to get there it's a very small space but uh they do manage to have an audience there that's very interested in seeing these uh hits of yesteryear this was a hit in fact it got uh, revived uh, a few years later on broadway again um which uh, is a nice tribute always when you get a revival. So, so I do think the climbers is worth checking out if you have an inter- interest in the history of uh, theater in America, um, and you find out what Clive Fitch is about is uh, a very significant thing. Okay, you also got a chance to see Ace at the Marjorie Dean Little Theater uh, across from Lincoln Center, sort of. So tell us. It's down the street, really. It's it's uh, it's down the street, but anyway, uh, very close to. Um, um, Wow, I'm, I'm blanking. Anyway, near Central Park. Anyway, so uh, here we are with Ace. And uh, I was reminded of On the 20th Century when I saw Ace because in On the 20th Century, we have the producer Oscar Jaffe, who is always besieged by people, um, not unlike this cab driver I mentioned earlier, who <laughs> want to read plays. you know. And um, I'm, I'm a doctor, and here's my pay, play, Life <clears throat> in a Metropolitan Hospital. Well, this is Life in a Metropolitan Taxi Cab. So um, what it is 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 um, Ted Greenberg telling about his adventures as a cabbie. At least that's what it seems to be. But it has a much bigger agenda because Ace is the name given to his father. His father is a very important man. And here he is driving a taxi cab. Now, he could get his degree from Harvard if he does finish writing one thesis. But he's been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And what the play really is about is how hard it is to be the son of a great man. That you you feel like you cannot possibly measure up to who he is. And the difficulties of living with that day to day while he's still achieving and he's being honored and given awards and all this kind of stuff. And there you are um, waiting to find out where you're going to be driving next when the person gets in and commands you to take you there, uh, take him there. So um, it's uh, about 75 minutes long and it um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if it bores a number of people, um, but um, others may find it engrossing, especially if they uh, know people in the situation or are people in the situation. But um, Ted Greenberg is uh, pretty effective in telling us his life story. And um, so it's uh, on the cusp of being worthwhile. All right. So that wraps it up for our reviews. Um, before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. This is a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have an episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us. Google Play has us. Uh, the TuneIn radio stations have, have us. Um, so, and the Stitcher app has us, as well as many other places you can listen to find our podcasts. Um, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, how about an answer to last week's trivia? Well, what I asked was, in the 2,662 musicals that have been produced on Broadway, only one character has ever had the first name of Merwin. Not Merlin. There are three musicals we know that he appeared in, Connecticut, Yankee, Camelot, and need we add Merlin. But Merlin, no, only one. And nobody <laughs> got this. Nobody got this. Um, and it's the first name of Mr. Goldstone in uh, Gypsy. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> David Kilcannon told me um, that he believes Merlin was the first name of Sergeant Toomey in Biloxi Blues. But um, as I had to say to him, well, that's a play. So, uh, so uh, anyway. Um, so, um, I was going to ask this week uh, about um, cast albums. Uh, in the old days, RCA Victor used to call their cast albums, give them catalog numbers of LOC or LSO, depending on mono or stereo. And Columbia did KOL and KOS. And I was going to ask what cast album had a catalog number of 36, 24, 36. And then I thought, this is just too, too <laughs> obscure. I'm not going to do it. So anyway, I'll give the answer. That's the, the musical Cleavage. And you're pardoned if you've never heard of it. But anyway, <laughs> because Cleavage, 36, 24, 36, uh, they used to be um, a big thing. We don't hear it as much anymore, happily enough, about a woman measurements but anyway so instead i'm going to ask in 1966 jerry herman's mame told us in song that the man in the moon is a lady but an even more famous musical that had been produced years before made the same observation but in dialogue what's the musical and what character makes the observation hmm. okay well if you have an answer to that uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. Michael, have a wonderful trip. We'll talk to you yeah, back in two too. weeks. And so much. Uh, Jenna Tessa Fox will be with us next week in your stead. And so on behalf of Michael Portantier, Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thank you so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.